0: Welcome to your Faith at Work Sermon Podcast. I'm Pastor Jim Melvin. Each week, I try to provide Bible and faith-based sermons that will be helpful to you in living a happy and faithful life. I come from a Christian perspective, but I respect and try to be relevant to people of any faith tradition and wherever they are in their faith journey. You are welcome here. This week's sermon is titled, Your Private Faith Although Punxsutawney Phil recently declared that we're in for six more weeks of winter, we can be encouraged by the quickly lengthening days and the erratic weather, signs that spring is coming. The wild celebrations of Mardi Gras and the more religious rites of Ash Wednesday also trumpet the approach of Easter and a promise of new life. Easter is celebrated on the first Sunday, after the first full moon, after the vernal equinox. So by definition, Easter ushers in spring. Ash Wednesday marks the official start of Lent, a six-week period of fasting and self-reflection that leads to Easter. For Christians, especially Roman Catholics, Ash Wednesday and Lent are crucial times for us to confront our sinful selves and to commit to living a new life. On Ash Wednesday, Christians around the world lined up at church altars to have ashes smeared on their foreheads to the ominous invocation, Remember you are dust, and to dust you shall return. In my years as a pastor, I smeared a lot of ashes on a lot of foreheads and spoken those words many times, and it always affected me deeply. This is serious business. My Bible focus for today comes from Matthew 6. It's commonly read at Ash Wednesday services. That timing always struck me as odd, since the Bible verse seems to contradict the Ash-smearing ritual and the other practices of Lent. I've found that apparent contradictions, like this one, can often lead us to a deeper understanding of the Bible and our religious traditions traditions and practices. So we're going to look at this today. This passage is a continuation of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, Beware of practicing your piety before others, in order to be seen by them. For then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Here ends the reading. The overall focus of this teaching is to avoid practicing your piety in public. Piety is the quality of being extremely religious or reverent. We all know people who worship regularly, pray ceaselessly, and live squeaky clean lives. While pious people set a good example for others, we often accuse them, perhaps out of jealousy, of being phony. I've heard people say with an ironic twist in their voice, she's just so pious. Jesus, however, is not condemning piety. He's condemning the outward show of piety for the sake of our own status or egos. Jesus gives three examples where we could possibly exhibit our piety in almsgiving or charity, in prayer, and in fasting. From the perspective of the Christian, and most other religions I can think of, all three are virtues. We should seek ways to give to those who are in need. That can be through our place of worship or through secular charities. Prayer as a way of communicating with and thanks to God is essential to a life of faith. And the last example, fasting, receives less attention among modern Christians, but intentionally deny ourselves on occasion can help us empathize with those who do not have enough. Martin Luther said, Fasting and other outward preparations may serve a good purpose in preparing ourselves to receive the Lord's Supper. But the best preparation, he said, is believing Jesus' words. Fasting prior to the Lord's Supper or any time can be a beneficial practice, but there is no substitute for faith. Jesus is not criticizing these acts of piety. He's drawing our attention to what's in our hearts And what's the motivation in these acts? During the Lenten season, for example, the smearing of ashes on our forehead isn't the point. It's what's going on inside of us that matters. Lent is a good time for giving, praying, and fasting. But all of these are worthless, if any of them are done without looking inward. Let's begin by looking at giving alms or practicing charity. Giving to the poor is as universal as it is old. It was a practice of ancient Judaism and carried over to early Christianity. Almsgiving is one of the five pillars of Islam. And Eastern religions such as Buddhism also encourage giving and caring for the poor. Sharing part of what we have with those who have less, seems to be a part of what it means to be human. This fundamental motivation has nothing to do with seeking anything in return. Jesus' teaching suggests that to maintain the purity of giving, that it should be done in private. In the 12th century, the Jewish philosopher Maimonides expanded on this teaching. Maimonides was the most influential Torah scholar of his time. He helped to explain Jewish laws and ethics so that they could be put into practice. Instead of just saying that our giving should be done in private, Maimonides developed the following eight step ladder of giving, the rungs of which represented the increasing virtue of each type of giving. Step one is the lowest, giving begrudgingly and making the recipient feel disgraced or embarrassed. Another step up, giving cheerfully, but giving too little. Step three, giving cheerfully and adequately, but only after being asked. Four, giving before being asked. Five, giving when you do not know who the individual is benefiting, but the recipient knows your identity. Six, giving when you know who is the individual benefiting, but the recipient does not know your identity. Number seven, giving when neither the donor nor the recipient is aware of the other's identity. And the highest form of giving, giving money, a loan, your time, or whatever else it takes to enable an individual to be self-reliant. If you look closely at this hierarchy, you will notice that following Jesus' admonition to give quietly and privately benefits both the recipient and the giver. First of all, the recipient benefits by not becoming an object of shame. In the highest form of giving, the recipients are empowered to help themselves. The giver is blessed by keeping their giving private, by experiencing the joy of a loving heart. This kind of giving becomes a spiritual practice, instead of just a social one. There's an old saying that encouraged people to give in medieval times that went, Every coin that in the alms box rings, another soul to heaven wings. It could be better written, Every coin that in the alms box rings, another giver's spirit wings. Understanding how this teaching works can have practical meaning for us. It can help us examine our own giving to most benefit others and in the process receive God's blessings of purity in our heart. On a communal level, it can also inform our politics and our social policies on how we care for those who Jesus called the least of these in our midst, the poorest most needy. At one point, Jesus said rather fatalistically, you will always have the poor with you. We might add, we will always have the need to give. I wouldn't overthink our giving. Just don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. The second part of Jesus' teaching is to pray in private. He said, whenever you pray, Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Like much of what Jesus taught, his teaching on prayer is in reaction to something that he sees going on around him, in this case, a misuse of prayer. It was common practice for Jewish men of Jesus' day to pray on public street corners while standing and bowing down. Fairly or not, Jesus criticized this practice of public prayer as making a show for others of their piety. I was once traveling uh, New York to Israel on a flight with a large group of Orthodox Jewish men. During the flight, they performed their morning prayers. They prepared for prayer by donning their tefillin, which was composed, composed of a small leather box containing a small parchment scroll and a long leather strap that was wrapped around one arm, hand, and fingers in a specially prescribed manner. They prayed standing up at the airplane bulkheads and in the galleys, where they nodded in bows as they read their prayers. Much to the chagrin of the flight attendants, they ignored their commands to be seated when the seatbelt sign came on during turbulence. What I witnessed that day was a clear culture clash. Some of the passengers, who were unfamiliar with the practice, looked perplexed or even angry at the flouting of the safety procedures. The men who were praying, however, looked equally unconcerned as they were used to receiving a hostile reaction to the public display of their prayer practice. Well, Do you think that Jesus would have condemned them for practicing their piety before others? Public prayer is not only practiced by Orthodox Jews. Corporate or group prayer is a staple of Christian worship. I can't count the thousands of worshipers that I've led in prayer while leading worship. But we don't only pray publicly in church. I've also opened large business meetings with a prayer of invocation or a dinner prayer. I've also prayed publicly with smaller groups, at restaurants and other venues. In all of these instances, including the one aboard my transatlantic flight, the real question is motivation. Jesus is condemning public prayer for the purpose of displaying our piety or showing off our faith. The purpose of prayer, public or private, is to establish communion with God. Many times, such as in prayer vigils after horrible disasters, public prayer is powerful, and I would say even essential. Martin Luther famously said, if you're going to sin, sin boldly. I would paraphrase it to say, if you're going to pray, Pray boldly. I can't help but think Jesus would agree. Jesus' final teaching has to do with fasting. He says, Whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites. Of all the ways of demonstrating our piety in public, this one is the most relevant for us in the season of Lent. During these six weeks, Christians around the world are thinking about what small pleasures they can deprive themselves of as a sign of their faith. As in the case with almsgiving and prayer, Jesus does not say that we should not fast. He, in fact, he implies that we should. We just should not make a show of it to other people. We know that Jesus practiced fasting himself. The first example occurs right after he is baptized by John in the Jordan. We read in Matthew Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was famished. If we ever had any doubt about Jesus sharing our humanity, his fasting left him famished and therefore vulnerable to temptation. Jesus used the time of fasting to help him in introspection and discipline, to be closer with God. One justification of our own fasting, then, is to follow in Jesus' footsteps. Our own self-denial is a way of us to share our walk with him to the cross. While giving up a favorite food or another luxury may seem insignificant in comparison with his ultimate sacrifice, and it is, but at least it helps us to begin to emphasize with the suffering of Jesus and suffering in the world in general. When we fast, we feel solidarity for the, with the millions of men, women, and children around the world for whom going without food is a daily reality, not a choice. Our self-denials are more than symbolic. They are spiritual disciplines that change us from the inside out. When we deny ourselves something we enjoy, and which it isn't wrong to want, we are saying there is something more important in our lives than purely physical pleasure. If we fast because we're dieting for our health, it's because how we feel and look is more important. Fasting in Lent means that God is more important. If fasting is combined with almsgiving and prayer throughout Lent, our hearts will be In the right place. Lent is a special time to practice your private faith. It's not about showing off our wealth through giving, or making a show of our praying, or by screwing up our faces to show how hungry we are from fasting. But taken together when performed with sincerity and pure motivation, this trifecta of spiritual disciplines can be a potent force in deeping our relationship with God. And as Jesus says, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when Easter comes, we will truly appreciate the gift of resurrection and true life. Amen. Thank you for joining me today. May God bless you and keep you. May God's face shine upon you. May God look upon you with favor and give you peace.